<clears throat> when I say the word wilderness, what tends to be the, the, the immediate, the immediate, I don't, don't think about it too long, but the immediate visual that comes into your brain. And I do want like actual, sorry, hypotheticals. Uh, maybe this is a new Chris, but like I want the, I want the interaction. The what? Holes, like the Shia LaBeouf movie? All right. Yeah, that's out in the wilderness. What else? I need you to speak louder, Rory. What was that? Forest with buffaloes. Yeah, that feels like very like a bespoke logo. Like REI, out in the wilderness. Um, yeah, very much that. Sticky and sweaty? Yeah, that's the Georgia wilderness right there. Um, yeah, some wildernesses are a little drier, but here it's sticky and sweaty, North Georgia mountains. Um, what about you, Stephen? Being alone? Yeah, certainly wilderness in some of the ways we'll talk about today and even how we think about it often here in America is it's desolate. It's not the place where people live. It's removed. It's isolated. Um, vulnerable? Yeah. Yeah. It's like Michael Scott out in the wilderness, right? <laughs> he's about to eat mushrooms that he doesn't even know what he's doing. Yeah. A, sorry. I can always make an office reference in some way. Yeah. Yeah, there's all these images that we tend to think of as we read through Jesus going into the wilderness and, and some of these ways that our imagination naturally goes to, but, but ways that might lead us to lessons that Scripture doesn't necessarily lead us to. And, and I'm not saying it's bad, and I'm not saying that today I'm going to bring inside knowledge that you didn't have before, but I also want us to think through the context as David's writing, as Jesus says these things. What how would they see or understand or think about some of these images? And so I'm going to control things today, so we'll see how this goes. So if it's screwed up on slides, don't blame Roger back there. It's me. Uh, and so um, here we go. But here's Israel. And during our trip, we had a chance to go here. So we had a very much a, a learning season uh, where we got to spend a, a decent amount of time in Israel. And so um, here's, here's the map. And to the west, uh, on the left side of the screen, is the Mediterranean, that little triangle way off there. Um, and then uh, you got the foothills, the Shephelah of Israel. Uh, and then it leads, if you can kind of read topography, it leads to the Judean mountains, this kind of mountain range that really Jerusalem sits upon. Jerusalem's actually kind of high up in the mountains. And then on the backside of that, it goes down pretty quickly, leads to the, the, the valley, the Jordan Valley and um, the Dead Sea, uh, down on the lower part. And then the upper sea is Galilee and the whole Galilee region that like two-thirds of Jesus' ministry takes place in. All of that is to the north of that map. Now, when we say wilderness, if you say the wilderness uh, to somebody in Israel, this is where they think of it. It's the Judean wilderness. It is the backside of the mountains, and uh, it's the whole place leading down from Jerusalem down towards uh, the Dead Sea uh, and a little bit south. And eventually you get this place called the Negev, which is the desert, and then Sinai as well. And so these are the pictures. These are the, the places. And so um, we had a chance to go. So here's us and our family in the Judean wilderness. We're on top of Masada, which is this fortress that Herod the Great had built uh, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and it's a fascinating place. Um, but I'll tell you what, it was hot. Um, I think the temperature the day we were there is about 105. Um, so it was, it was pretty warm. And it wasn't even the hottest that it gets. And so um, we're, we're standing there on top of this. You had to take a cable car up. Uh, the picture kind of deceives the height. We had to take a cable car up there. And it's amazing, and it's really beautiful. Um, and, and as you're up there, off in the distance, um, 
you can see the Dead Sea and, and there's an upper part of it and a little bit of a lower part. It's beautiful. And when you're hot at 105 degrees, it looks like this amazing oasis where you're just going to go and cool off and enjoy yourself. Um, and, and I had had a chance uh, when we visited um, Scott and Jenna, uh, who are missionaries. We, there's a fly in here. Um, when we sent uh, Scott and Jenna, who are missionaries who were in church, they, they were in Amman for a while in Jordan learning um, Arabic, and, and so I had a chance to go to the Dead Sea before. So I didn't have a chance to, uh, I didn't really think of forewarning my wife about the Dead Sea experience. And so um, she's hot, the kids are hot, and, and we decide to go down to the Dead Sea. And I think they all had in their mind that this was going to be this amazing, refreshing moment of swimming in the Dead Sea. And so we did get into the water um, and have the, the, the cool Dead Sea experience. And that's Deacon holding this rock salt that was just like all over the floor of the Dead Sea. Um, he has it. He still has it in Tupperware in the house. And uh, we get into the water, and it's probably about 105 degrees as well. It's hot. It's miserable. The kids were like, let's get out of here as quickly as they got into the sea. Um, and like any scar, any wound, anything is like just painful. Uh, and so um, it's a unique experience. Don't hear me say don't do it. It's pretty cool. Like it really does like push you out of the water. Um, and there's salt and everything else everywhere. Uh, so, so do it if you have a chance to. But it was just like hot and dry and there was nothing green. It, it's a unique space. And this is the Judean wilderness. It is a unique space. It is uh, very different than we tend to think. And there's reasons for that. So like, here's like the Judean wilderness. This is what is, should be in our minds of what the Judean foothills on the backside of the mountain range really look like. And there's a reason for this. So I'm getting nerdy, topography. And, and so you have the Mediterranean Sea, there's plenty of moisture, good ocean moisture. You got the foothills, rains would come. Uh, rain on those foothills, provide crops and corn and everything else that they would grow. And then the mountains, and this works just as it does in America, the Sierra Nevadas and things like that. You eventually pull all that moisture out of the air pretty quickly on, uh, as, the, as those clouds reach those mountains. And on the backside of mountains, there's not a lot. It tends to be drier. Like, that's how the state of Oregon. There's like Portland, and then there's everything dry in the rest of the state. And so um, the backside of the state is a little bit more barren, and it's not quite as green and lush. And um, that's certainly true on the backside of the mountains. And the Judean wilderness is that sort of place. Now let's do a little bit of entomology on the word wilderness. Because the word wilderness in, in Hebrew is the word midbar. DBR is sort of the base root of the word. Now in Hebrew, we have 8,000 words in the biblical Hebrew. In English, we probably have half a million words uh, to describe things. And so Hebrew words have to do a lot more work, which makes translators' lives miserable, but they have to do a lot more work. And they often are in families. Um, so we don't really know how all the vowels totally work in, in, in ancient Hebrew yet, um, but we know they exist. We just don't know exactly what they all sound like. And so you have a few consonants and a whole family of words based upon those few consonants and then various vowel marks to, to make out the words. And so you have a word like wilderness, which is midbar, and then you have something like um, word or command, which is debar. And then you have something like to speak, which is dibber or deber. Um, and all these words are like part of the same family of words. And it becomes peculiar. All right, why does wilderness have to do with word? How does that have to do with speaking? 
all these sort of questions. And, and I think it even gets more unpacked as you keep going. And then you have a, one of the words for a shepherd, which is madbir, which is part of the same family. The word for pasture is dober, which once again includes these, these letters, these, these families, this group. And so, what do you think all these words have to do with each other? I mean, what do you think? The word wilderness, the word word or speak, and then shepherding and things like that? Any initial thoughts? Why, why would those be connected? Well, the, the, the picture to me, so ultimately shepherds are the ones who lead by, by speaking. And where they shepherd, and where you would shepherd, and it, it says if, um, to form the sentence, the, the shepherd, the madbir, leads the flock in the wilderness, the midbar, by speaking, to bear words, to bar, and giving instruction, to bar, of like the 10 words, commandments. So when we say the 10 commandments, it's actually just the 10 words, the 10 debar. The leading them to a pasture, dober, and in times of danger, to a sheepfold, a word we didn't even cover, which is devir. And so you have all these words that are all part of this amazing family. And in the Hebrew imagination, are all interconnected much more than we tend to. And the wilderness is the land of the shepherds. And the shepherds lead with their voice. And I'm very thankful to someone like Ray Vanderlaan who unpacks so much of this. Now, can we remember from scripture, shepherds, besides Jesus? I think Jesus is the easy Sunday school answer. He's the good shepherd. But, but who else in scripture is a shepherd? Anybody? Everybody said, David, David's definitely a shepherd. He leaves his flock to go take out Goliath at one point. Who else? Joseph, yeah. That whole lineage of those four, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Joseph, all of them shepherd at one point in the storyline. Who else? Anybody else? Moses is definitely a shepherd. I mean, he ends up taking over Jethro's flocks, ends up seeing the burning bush while doing that. We get a few prophets, Amos and a few others, who, who have a shepherding background. And so if you were to like name some of the, the hall of fame of the Old Testament, I would say almost a majority of them are shepherds. And the most famous characters certainly are. are Abraham, Moses, David, are shepherds. And it becomes interesting because not only that, but even the story of who Israel is. Because God shows up in Egypt he delivers his people, takes them out of Egypt. He leads them through the Dead Sea, or the Red Sea, not the Dead Sea. Um, and even that's wrong because it's the Sea of Reeds, but that's in a whole other conversation. And so leads them on the other side and then leads them into this wilderness place. And, and often, like even the psalmist, as they reflect on that time, they would say, we were like your sheep being led by our shepherd. And we were like your sheep in the pasture or whatever. They would, they would include this language of that period of time as if, God was our shepherd and we were his sheep. That God uses and even has a particular place for the desert, the wilderness, for his people. Teaching about what it looks like to be a sheep and him to be our shepherd. The, uh, one writer, uh, Bruce Feiler, says this about the desert. He says, because the place, sorry, there we go. Because the place is demanding, it builds character. Because it's destructive, it builds interdependence because it's isolating. It builds community, and because it's a desert, it builds nations. So I want to talk about a few of the lessons I think come from the desert. And one of those is really learning how to listen. 
Because I've already noted there's a unique connection between all these words, right? We've already noticed that shepherd and wilderness and, and pasture, all these words are also connected to the idea of word and speaking. But there's already a, a linguistic connection. But if you ever, um, when we were, we were driving, we were driving from Jerusalem down into the valley towards the Dead Sea, we, we suddenly finally started seeing flocks. We hadn't really seen some up to that point, and I'll, I'll get to why in a second, but we started seeing all these flocks like up in the hillsides, and you would look over this hill, and there'd be this little blob of sheep all coming along. And then usually behind them, not out in front, but behind them were the shepherds. And the shepherds completely, I mean, if you roll down the window, completely guide their sheep just by speaking. They would shout a command, and the sheep would kind of pivot. And they would shout another command, and the sheep would kind of pivot. And, and from behind, they were able to, to lead and speak. The sheep know their voice. You could actually put uh, multiple flocks into a sheep pen and yet remove your own flock if you were a shepherd by simply speaking because they recognize their own shepherd's voice. So the shepherd would speak, their sheep would leave the sheep pen, and the other flocks would stay inside the sheep pen on their own. There's even stories also of, of sheep um, being sort of scattered because um, their shepherd died for whatever reason. There was maybe a tragic death, and they hadn't trained somebody else to, to speak for, that the sheep recognized, and the sheep had no one, and they wouldn't follow anyone, and they would sort of be a little bit lost. So the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. Um, even thinking back to the Israel story of, once again, going out into the desert. Does anyone remember the first test that they really encounter? They go to this well, it's bitter, they're really thirsty, they're really wanting water, and they get to this well and it's bitter, and they have to put this log into it and ultimately find this oasis around the corner. I'm not preaching on that text because it's weird, but that's what happens. And then they go, all right, this is the lesson that we learn. They reflect on that. And it's a lesson they'll learn again with, with manna. But does anybody remember the lesson that they walked away with? That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father, from God. Like the very lesson, the very first lesson in that shepherding desert experience is, oh, it's not just bread alone. We have to listen. Our life is going to depend on the word from our Shepherd, the Dabar from God, a, a, an image, a picture that Jesus certainly picks up on when he says, my, my sheep hear my voice, um, I know them, and they follow me, this idea that Jesus is, in some ways, that shepherd as well. So I think the desert places teach us to be people of the ears and not the eyes. And, and so it's, it's a unique lesson to be the ones to be able to listen as opposed to see it's funny because as you were traveling too, you would see all these sort of sheep all together. They were following their shepherd. They were doing their thing. You would see the shepherd come from behind. You would hear him kind of shouting commands. And know what you would see right after that? If you were a shepherd, what else might you have besides sheep? What other flocks might a shepherd have? Anybody, this is a perfect opportunity. Goats? Yeah goats. And it's great. So you would see these paths. You would see, I don't know if you can make out in this picture, but there's these lines of sheep walking along these paths. They're all together. They're in perfect like order, everything. And then you would see the goats. And in this one, you can see them. They're like down on the hillside. They don't follow anything. They just do whatever the heck they want. 
They are not going to listen to the shepherd. They can kind of make out the shepherd, and as the shepherd walks, they'll kind of like follow along, but they're not going to listen. They're going to be stubborn. They're going to eat the things the sheep aren't eating, which is great, and, and they're going to follow along too. And it's great because the sheep provide certain things, and the goats provide certain things, and it's awesome. Sheep have cl- provide clothing and stuff like that. Goats provide milk for cheese. and, and So it's, a, it's great. And so shepherds usually shepherded both flocks at the same time, and so the sheep would follow the commands and the goats would not. Which is a fascinating imagery when Jesus picks up on it in Matthew, because he'll eventually say, look, there's like sheep and there are goats. And the sheep are the ones who listened to my voice. And they were the ones who gave water to those who were thirsty and clothes to those who needed it and food for those who were hungry. Like that is, they, they listened to what I called them to be and to do. And so the desert provides this place, this place for us to listen. And the second is that we learn how to trust. Um, imagine you are, um, I always like this historic imagination. Imagine you're an Israelite, 400 years in, on the Delta, the Nile Delta. It's flat, it's green, it's abundant. And along came a pharaoh that enslaved you, certainly the, a terrible moment in history. But that pharaoh gets dealt with, gets drowned in the Nile, and God says, hey, follow me here. We're going to wander through this desert. And if you've only been in a world where it's pretty much flat, I mean, there were 400 years. That's older than our country is. Flat, green land where things are known, they're kind of predictable, water is always available, all those sort of things. And then God calls you here. What a change. Like, what can, if you were walking through one of these little kind of canyons, what can you see? What, what, visually, what would your visual field be? Not much, right? It would be, I mean, it might be beautiful, but you're not seeing what's around the corner. You're not seeing if you're wandering through a dead end. You don't know where the next water supply is possibly going to pop up. There's very little ahead of you. It's, it's extremely unknown. It's extremely unsafe. And, and, and you are now moving from a place. There, there's a reason why the Israelites were like, hey, can we go back? There was food. Like there, was, there were things back in Egypt that were really not that bad. Out here, it feels like this. It, it's, it's the wild. It's the wilderness. And they had to be a people who couldn't rely on their eyes, but had to rely on the voice that spoke. The God who led them in the wilderness to trust and to care. And so I think we're set up now. So we can approach something that is well known to us. A psalm that we all have probably heard in some way, shape, or form to possibly hear it a little bit differently than we did before. So, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So already from the get-go, David professing, admits, Lord, you are like a shepherd to me, and, and I can be content in that. I shall not have these wants. I'm good. I'm content. So let's keep going. He leads me beside green pastures. Okay, let's talk about this one. I know immediately most of our minds go here, right? 
Ireland, Scotland, wherever the heck this is. Like somewhere, it's green and extremely verdant, and there's lovely little sheep filling the hillside. They're probably fat and as healthy as can be, and it's a beautiful day somewhere up there. And, and, and this is the picture. But remember, this is the topography. And even on the, the green side of Israel is not all that green to begin with let alone where shepherds would go. Because shepherds go to the wilderness. There's only so much land that you can grow plants on. And it is valuable, and it is rare. It's too valuable and too scarce to actually use on livestock. The only time livestock would end up there is at the end of the harvest, and they would pick up the little shrubble and help fertilize the land again for the spring. That was like the only time you would take the, 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 the sheep and the goats and everything out. Otherwise, it was out in the desert. It was out in that wilderness that we saw. That is the place for the sheep. This place, which makes you go, these sheep must only eat rocks and sand, right? Because how would you possibly survive in a place like that? And so, but they would call these green pastures. And the reason why is this. So all throughout these sections, and it depends on the mountain, it depends on the hill, it depends on what you're looking at, there, but you could see it sometimes. If the, if the light just hit right, you could see, hey, there's some plants right there. And, and the shepherds would know how to find those. And there's just enough moisture in there, there's just enough rainfall once in a while that water would collect near the rocks, or um, that, that at night it would condense onto a rock and provide just enough moisture for these plants to kind of be right next to a rock or tucked into these little spots. And the shepherds would know it. And they'd be able to see. Even though the sheep couldn't necessarily make it out, the shepherd would go, all right, I can tell there's a green pasture over there. And where our minds thinking green pasture, and we go back to that picture that I just showed, but, but this is so much more the picture that should be in our minds. These green places in the wilderness. And the shepherd would know how to lead his sheep here. And when the sheep get there, guess what? They would have like a mouthful to eat, one little plant, and then they would have to move a little further and eat another little plant, and then have to move a little further and eat another little plant. And it, and it changes things. I think it changes how we have to sort of sometimes read some of these texts, that this picture that these green pastures are not everything we need for the rest of our life, right? That's the alfalfa picture. The alfalfa picture is God's going to take you, plant you in this place that's green and lush, and you could just sit there and eat for the rest of your life. You could turn around and circle. You don't even have to move. You just enjoy the green and just be fat and healthy. But I don't know about you, but that's not life. <laughs> that's just not life. That's not reality for most of our lives. But there is a lesson, I think, in the, in the visual that David, who would have been in the Judean wilderness, I think is conveying. And that is a lesson about God providing enough for right now. I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what's coming next. I don't know when the next tufts of grass will be, but I trust my shepherd to get us there. And when I get there, there'll be just enough. And I'll have to keep moving. And I'll have to keep trusting of what's going to be next. And I better keep listening to the voice of the shepherd. 
It's this idea that the green pasture is not a one-time idea, not a one-time arrival, but something for now. And then 10 minutes, trusting that I will get to a green pasture again, listening to the voice of the shepherd. Like, it's the same lesson that Israel had to deal with with manna, right? Like, God gave them manna for how long? <laughs> One day. And if they collected for any for the next day, it was going to turn into, like, rotten mess, right? They had manna for that day. And then they'd have to wake up the next day and trust that God's going to provide manna for that day. Other than Friday, where they can double up so that they can rest on Saturday. And so you had one day, one day, one day. Trust God around the next corner. Trust God around the next corner, whatever it may be. He leads me beside still waters, um, and he restores my soul. Still waters is actually a pretty decent translation and idea. But in the desert, how much water do you think they would run across leading their sheep? Not much, right? And there are a few. There's the En Gedi and these little oasises tucked in here and there. Um, but guess what those waters aren't? They're actually not that still. They tend to be like little waterfalls and springs that, that pop up. And so what is more common and probably more likely the idea is when rain does finally happen in the desert, it's rare, and you get all, all the, the rocks and all the really hard soil, and it all rushes through these things called wadis. They're like little dry bed rivers where the water would run. And they'd fill the wadis, and they'd rush through, and then eventually run out to the Dead Sea or something else. But there'd be shadows along the cliffs, and where water would pool, and it would be like this. And as they're wandering in the desert, they would find these places of still water, these these puddles to survive off of. And a shepherd who knows his terrain and knows where to go knows how to lead his sheep and find these pockets and provide for the sheep. And if the sheep had to find them by themselves, they would probably die. But the shepherd knew how to lead to these places of still water. And he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So, once again, this is actually picking up a very, uh, uh, very shepherd imagery. Paths of righteousness were actual, literal things. We'll go to the picture we had before. These are paths of righteousness. So, as sheep are taken on these paths that happen all the time, and have happened for hundreds of years, and, and, and they would constantly go back, and there would often be paths led through these little green pastures that we were able to find. So, they could find the green pastures because they could usually see these paths off in the distance. And they were called by Hebrews and by Bedouins who are Arab and not even Hebrew themselves. They were called paths of righteousness. They were called right paths. They would use the same words. And so the sheep would lead, uh, the, the shepherds would lead the sheep on these paths knowing these paths are where there's food. And these paths lead to safety. And these paths lead to water. And these paths are the right paths for you to walk in. So he leads his sheep on that for his own sake. So that he would know, you would know he's a good shepherd. So that we would trust the shepherd. And then the next section of the song, I think is the most gospel connection as well. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For, for those of you who are 90s people, I immediately go to Coolio, and I wish I didn't. Um, I know the few people in here that totally understand what I'm talking about. Uh, even though I walk through the valley of shadow, now you're singing it with me, um, valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort, I'm so sorry, uh, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, first off, please let me dispel anything another preacher might have said. 
Shepherds, Middle Eastern shepherds, do not use their staffs to hurt their sheep. They don't hit their sheep. They don't break their legs and throw them on their backs and carry them. I've heard all sorts of crazy teaching on that. Um, It's bunk. There's almost no history of any of that kind of stuff. The staff was there for a few practical reasons. One was just to walk with, uh, and the other one was for protection. They would fend off hyenas and coyotes and wolves, whatever else is common threat to a herd. And so they have these staffs. And in the valley of the shadow of death, and so the desert's harsh, and there are places that feel dangerous, where death is possible, where, where animals might attack, whatever it is. And what's fascinating is in these moments, the shepherds often move from being behind the sheep, leading with voice, and they would move into the sheep. They would actually be amongst the sheep, holding their staff, ready to fend off any attack. And that's such a beautiful picture to me. That you have the shepherd who has led by the word in God for so long, speaking to his people. And then that word becomes flesh and dwells among us. God enters into his sheep to, to walk with them, and to be here, and to bring comfort in their affliction, which is this picture of providing, ultimately, safety to fend off affliction, which I think we could even metaphorize, and, and uh, that's not a real word, and make metaphoric and, and say it's like sin, and, 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 and that we would not fear the ultimate evil, which is death, because Jesus would be the one to conquer it, to fend it for the sake of his sheep, that he would deal with death, even at the risk of his own life as a shepherd. It's this beautiful picture David didn't know he was writing about. He's just talking about shepherds and how God's like that. And, and then we get to this God and Jesus fulfilling that. And we'll talk about Jesus some more in a moment. Because certainly there's a literal desert. But this idea, the wilderness, is used throughout Scripture metaphoric as well. And we use it metaphorically often too. The hard lessons in life, the trials, the difficulties, the suffering. And let me very pastorally speak now and make a a pretty um, harsh transition in some ways. Um, And I have these here just in case, but for many of you, the desert is like the best description of life right now. Like, you, you don't know how to describe life other than it feels like a desert. It feels like the wilderness. One friend I have right now, his, her season of life, she says, this is like a long winter. And however you want to run with the metaphor, a long season, a harsh season, a difficult season, so many of you are in that. Maybe it's a medical condition where nothing seems to be getting better. Every time you go to the doctor, it's another case of bad news. It's bad news after bad news after bad news and it just never stops. And you just want one moment of something good. Maybe it's pain and suffering related to death of some sort. A death of a family member that you deeply loved, that is now absent, absent from holidays, absent from phone calls, absent from life itself. It's a season of hurt and pain, and you just can't figure out how to get out of it. Maybe it's struggling with fertility and miscarriage. This ongoing desire for life itself instead of death. This wanting for those things. 
and yet the feeling that they're unattainable, and that something's wrong, and it brings anxiety, and, and this sort of feeling of, I just want this season to end. Maybe it's loneliness, depression, what I think Brother Lawrence initially called the dark night of the soul. Maybe your desert right now is that season where you don't even really want to get out of bed, if you're honest. Listless, lacking joy, struggling to feel connected to anyone, wanting to be alone, but really actually not wanting to be alone at the same time. And it's exhausting. Maybe the loneliness that comes from singleness when you've longed for a spouse, or loneliness in marriage to a partner that doesn't seem to know or care or feel distant, feels like there's no love, there's no connection anymore, and it feels very lonely together. Maybe job circumstances that make you feel like you're just crawling to get to work, that you're, check, you're checking the check mark of getting a paycheck, but everything else about work is just awful, and you got to do it day after day after day. Or the feeling of the loneliness of community and feeling that lack of you're, you're overwhelmed with life. Maybe you have young kids and you feel really disconnected from those around you because taking care of anybody five and under is like the most exhausting thing in the world. And you want friends and you want community, but you want to love your kids well and you're trying to do all the things and it's exhausting. And it just feels dry and like a wilderness. Do we get everybody? I feel like that should probably cover most of us in the room. And if we look at our lives simply through eyes to see, then it feels like maybe evil is winning. And as in the desert, you start learning not to be a person of the eyes, but a person of the ears. When darkness and death feel like they're surrounding you just because of life itself, in that place, in that moment, right then, may you hear the words of the shepherd. And maybe you cannot see. You don't know where he's leading. It feels uncertain, yet he says, do not fear. Take heart. I have overcome this world. I'm with you. I love you. You're mine. I laid down my life for you. I took it back up. And now listen to my voice. I'm speaking and I'm here. The desert is a part of life. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that you will not walk through a desert. Deserts come to all. As much as the rainfall comes on all, and it's a beautiful story that Jesus gives us in that parable, the desert comes to all too. This is life. And does God always give an answer to the why and always perspective to understand it all? No. It's the wonders of praying with the Psalms. Half the Psalms are like, why God? How long is this going to last? When will you finally do something about this? When is this going to get fixed? So you are in good company if that is your feeling right now with some beautiful words out of scripture. I wish God gave answers. I do. But he doesn't always. And maybe even this morning, you may be not even in a place to hear this message at this moment because it is so hard in your life right now. It's like, great, Chris. Like, just tell me to listen to my shepherd and follow him. It's like, 
you don't know my life right now and how hard it is. Maybe that's you. Maybe this is a message you need to hear before you walk through. Maybe life's actually quite good right now. Maybe you have plenty of things to celebrate and things are awesome. But you don't know what the next corner holds. And you don't know what wandering through that canyon is going to have at the next season. I think back to a, a story out of a book uh, Brent and Sarah and I are reading together by Tish Warren. And she's talking about this young couple who um, one of their young ch- children had to have surgery and they've got to take their kid into surgery and they're, they're worried, they are concerned. It's, it's hard to send your kid to go be opened by a scalpel. And they said, they said this, they said, we have to decide right now whether or not God is good before the surgery. Because if we wait to determine that by the results of the surgery, we will always keep God on trial. And very much this idea of almost asking the question of, do I trust the shepherd to be good? No matter where the desert takes me, no matter how long the season might last, do I trust that he's good? And I don't think we'd ever wish for our deserts. I don't think we'd ever ask them on anybody else, even our enemies at times. But there are moments sometimes where we learn to see them better. And it's usually after the fact. And the things that we wished away, we can sometimes look back on with this odd fondness of what it actually built in us. Maybe a closeness, maybe character, maybe relationship, the way things are forged. Maybe you got forged into a greater community during the hardest seasons of your life. I love that that was part of the testimony of life groups. It's like we were all going through a whole bunch of deserts together and it made, it, it made us that much closer. Because we're not meant to do it alone. I'm going to steal Sarah's benediction here. Um, like we are, we are part of a flock too, to sometimes stand there and go, hey, that shepherd is good. And I've been through a desert like this before, but the shepherd's still good. So may we listen and trust because Jesus is the word who came and walked the desert too, literally. He literally walked the Judean deserts, but also figuratively. He knew pain. He knew hardship. He knew betrayal. He knew suffering. He was both sheep and the shepherd, and he understands the deserts that his sheep walk through, and that makes him that much better than anything else in the world. And then we have the good shepherd who understands and knows what it's like to be a sheep in the middle of the desert going, it's really hot here and I'm wearing wool and I don't know what to do. But there's some green right there. Oh, and there's some green up there where he's telling me to go. Oh, good. So may we listen and trust. And I love that the next step in the psalm is actually this moment. Sorry, I went a little long in the second service. Um, this moment where um, the psalmist will then say, but in the middle of the desert, God prepares a table for me. Even though there's enemies, even though there's presence of of the enemies around us, like God still provides. And I think the first communions were probably these great feasts and they all celebrate together. And and sometimes I, I long for that. But at the same time, like this becomes a fascinating lesson too. We don't, we don't have abundance here. You get, you just get a little piece. But it's enough. It's enough. That mixed with faith, enough. And we come forward and we celebrate weekly that God is the God who came and laid down his life as the good shepherd, took on sin for us so that we can become his righteousness and we would now, by faith, walk the right in right paths of righteousness, following our shepherd all the days of our lives. 
so we're going to celebrate that now. We give thanks to God, our Father, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that before he would go on to suffer at the cross, he gave us this memorial, this sacrifice of his sacrifice until he comes again. And at the last supper with his disciples, Jesus took the bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it. He gave thanks for it. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again 